Hi there, Hi. I'm Dr. Sam Hazeldine, as I would hope you know, uh, founder of MedWorld. Uh, today I am interviewing Dr. Charlotte Chambers. Now, Charlotte is the Principal Analyst uh, at the Association of Salaried Medical Specialists and has conducted some really interesting uh, research into burnout and particularly into gender bias in medicine uh, and, and how that relates to burnout, which we are going to discuss today. Um, Charlotte's been doing this for a long time. We were just discussing that soon they'll be releasing some updated uh, work on, on burnout in mean, a five-year sort of follow-up study. So has really been in this space for a long time. So has a wealth of knowledge and uh, we're lucky to be talking to you today. So welcome, Charlotte. Good to have you uh, here on, the, on on this live stream. Kia ora, Sam. Thank you for the invite. My pleasure. Look, it's important work. So I'm glad we're getting to uh, to explore it a bit. So um, I guess bef before we go into talking about gender bias, actually, um, obviously you're you're an expert in uh, in burnout and doctors as well. What what got you interested in this work? I wouldn't say I'm an expert yet, but uh, I sort of stumbled across it in the work that I've been doing for the ASMS, broadly looking at indicators of well-being in the specialist medical workforce here in New Zealand. And we ran the first nationwide survey of burnout levels in senior medical professionals um, five years ago now, back in mm. 2015, using the Copenhagen Burnout Inventory. And it turned out that this is the first time that a nationwide study had been performed using that particular tool. So um, we had it published in the BMJ Open. It, was, it continues to get a lot of uh, sort of citations. Um, and I think it was important work in terms of setting the discourse around burnout as a particular indicator of well-being for uh, New Zealand doctors especially. Mm. And how did that burnout compare to burnout internationally? So at the time we found that just over half of those who'd responded to the survey were scoring as being likely to be experiencing burnout. Um, and that seemed to be fairly, from memory, a little bit higher um, than comparable studies um, looking at different occupational groups. And it certainly was in line with other research that's been far more widely suited, uh, cited using the Maslach Burnout Inventory. I know Shanna Felt and his crew at the Mayo Clinic have been doing a lot of work in that space. So mm. there is that general acknowledgement that doctors do have higher rates of burnout when compared with the general public. And I mm. think our research from memory certainly um, followed that pattern it, i mean I, I i just i know that it's been around for a long time the, the research but it just it never ceases to amaze me that one in two doctors are experiencing burnout it's just such a it's such a high number but you, you'd never know it from a group of doctors we're so good at hiding it uh, and i think there's also a degree of um being able to recognize it as well and that yep. sense that certain behaviors do become normalized Yep. And I think it's only at that point where you either hit the point of no return and either bail out of medicine or have a significant, perhaps a subsequent event, which I'm sure you'll know far more about in being a mm. doctor than I do, um, mm. that, that's the point at which it gets recognised. But what the survey seemed to suggest is that there are many, you know, one in two doctors in New Zealand who are regularly working with high levels of fatigue, exhaustion. Uh, and that certainly... It resonated with the other work that we've done as well, looking at the rates at which doctors will routinely work through illness, which we've termed presenteeism. Yeah. And also is another lens, if you like, on why um, bullying is a problem as well. I think 
again, it's a sort of normalization of perhaps ways of working or uh, ways of feeling when you're at work uh, that actually probably shouldn't be normalized and may may not be acceptable in other uh, workplaces either. Mm, I mean, that's a, that's a, that normalization is a really interesting piece, isn't it? Because um, you know, when something is so sort of endemic through a population um, of, of you know of doctors, um, we we just we just grow to accept that this is how it is, this is how it has been, this is how it was for me, and therefore this is how it's going to be for for you. You know, at the moment, I mean, and it's, I think that you spoke to the. It is so difficult to to identify in yourself as well. I know that when I was I've been doing sort of research, been in the space around well, um, burnout and well-being for six or seven years now. And I remember, you know, about five years ago, and I'd been doing a lot of work in the burnout space, and I was feeling a bit tired, and I was just feeling a bit, you know, disengaged, and just, you know, here I am actually spending a lot of time in the burnout space. And at one point, I thought, oh look, I'll just do one of these burnout quizzes and see see what it showed. And it showed that I was I was in you know, high, you know, severe burnout. And, and for someone who's researching in the space to still not be able to see it in myself, it really gave me an appreciation of just how hard it is. And I think particularly because of that normalization, because we see it as, you know, par for the course, if one and two are feeling like this, then when, why should I be any different? Yep. And so this is the other particular interest that I have is looking more broadly at aspects of the culture of medicine that I think are really disabling in many ways. Um, and in particular that, I mean, we know that we've got clinical creep, so we know that there are growing workload pressures, but if you combine that with an expectation that medicine, along with many other professions, I, I think it's fair to say, uh, that it is a job that you're supposed to give in many ways your life too. It is supposed to dominate both in terms of time, uh, and I'm sure you can speak to how long it takes to actually become a doctor. Mm. Um, and it's kind of like the, a perfect storm as well, in that it is at a certain level, I think, expected that you're supposed to work crazy hours. It's expected that you're supposed to be fatigued, but actually how sustainable is that in the long run? Mm. And so this is where I started to do some qualitative research around I guess, what is it that is leading to these statistics? Because the other aspect of that first study was there was a clear disparity in terms of burnout rates by gender and age. Mm. Uh, and I was really worried that there was, basically it was like two parallel lines tracking along across the age groups where women across all age groups had statistically significant higher rates of burnout than their male counterparts. And this really peaked for the um, specialists in their younger ages so the 30s and their 40s mm. uh, from from that first study that it was 71 percent of women in their 30s who'd responded were scoring as being likely to have very high levels of burnout wow so and so that's what prompted this, this this qualitative research that you've done um and I, I, i'd like to get to that but mm. you were speaking you're speaking to the culture of medicine Yes. Um, and, and I think what you know, an interesting thing about this burnout, and you know, it was I think th over three years ago that you know we lobbied the World Medical Association. We amended the the uh, Declaration of Geneva. You know, put in there you know value set of doctors worldwide as I look after myself. Um, but you know, I, I'm not certainly not seeing it getting any better. Um, and and so 
you know, and, and, and you know, I guess, um, you know, there's, there's research to show that it isn't. There's also uh, just uh, qualitative uh, experience that, that, that seems to demonstrate that it isn't. And I know you're going to be publishing some work soon, but, but why, why do you think that? You know, there's obviously a much bigger focus than there was. So burnout wasn't something we talked about when I was at medical school 20 years ago. But, but you know, there's a much bigger focus, you know, at the highest level of the World Medical Association have said, yes, it's important, we've got it, the doctors have to look after themselves. What, why do you not, why do you think it's not changing? Big question. Um, I think the problem's multifaceted to begin with. And I think sure. that because of that, you have to kind of have a more nuanced understanding. I guess, I mean, I'm coming from the union, right? So I, I work for the, the union that represents senior doctors and dentists around yeah. New Zealand. So we would clearly see an issue with the expectations in terms of the workloads that doctors are facing. And we also think that there's a fairly significant problem with how stretched and how lean the system is. Mm -hmm. And we've been doing surveys of clinical directors working in different services around the country. And there's a consistent reporting of short staffing in their services, which I think is a big part of the problem. You know, on average, it's almost a 25% staffing shortfall around the country at that specialist level. You combine that with shortages in other um, staffing groups as well that make up the, the medical workforce, broadly speaking, and it's a real problem. Mm. And I think if you combine that with the, I guess, what I would broadly term the more I suppose, aspects of the culture of medicine that are problematic, this expectation that it's normal to work long hours, it's normal to deal with fatigue, then I think, it, as I said before, it can lead to this perfect storm, which burnout is a, a lens on it, if you like. It's just one particular mm. view. Mm. And I think, um, I think the discourse around burnout has gained um, purchase, if you like, in the public arena. Yep. It's, it's um, certainly a focus now, but again, it is. I think we have to see it as a as an indicator or a lens on well-being issues more broadly. Um, mm. I also don't think it's unsurprising in many ways that when you're at that point of experiencing burnout, as you found yourself, that you're unable to recognise it, because I think yeah. um, you know you are obviously a driven professional. There is an expectation that you just keep pushing through, you keep working harder, and that's what it that's what's expected of you almost. Yeah, I think where the gender lens can be quite helpful in terms of adding another dimension to this. Um, I was reading a paper today that um, Tate Shanafout put out last year looking at uh, why burnout has become normalised, if you like, as a behavioural response in some regards. I think that's how he framed it. Mm. It's partly because um, I think doctors are inculcated to work as if they are um, a part of the superhero mentality, which is... Yeah. Not a criticism against um, doctors, but it's the way in which you're kind of expected to train. It's the yeah. characteristics that are fostered in you, um, you know, the perfectionist tendencies, all that type of stuff. It does tend to add to the likelihood that you will experience um, burnout, I think, in many ways. I yeah. think the gender lens adds another dimension to it when you think about medicine as having values and cultures which are inherently gendered. And I think that might be partly why women working in medicine today are experiencing a qualitatively different set of experiences to their male counterparts. Yeah, and that's I can imagine. Yeah. And we will get into that. I, it's interesting. I mean, I, I sort of thinking about burnout and I sort of created a, you know, how would you approach burnout? And I mean, at the base of it all, though, is full staffing. 
if you're running at 25%, you forget about all the, you know, mindfulness and um, you can do this, you can do that. It's like, that's just a Band-Aid too. You've actually got to have enough staff, don't you? What's driving that? What's driving 25% of not enough specialists in the country? Uh, well, I mean, we know that there's that health has been underfunded for a long time. Um, I mean, we've just had the health review coming out or come out, which um, I don't think really gave us any answers to that question. They acknowledged it, which is a starting point. Yeah. But the sense that you have to work differently and you have to perhaps think about staffing services differently is a little bit of a sidestep, I think, of the real issue. Um, we also know that there's massive unmet need in New Zealand and significant amounts of the Māori and Pacifica populations sure. are missing out on treatment. So yeah. I don't think you can deny that we need to put more money into health, that we need to fund more positions because there's certainly the need for it and mm. those who are currently working in the system are suffering. So yeah. you have to take a, a nuanced and multifaceted approach to the solution to this problem. Yeah, um, and a fresh lens on it, isn't it? I mean, you, you, a lot of times I was thinking about this the other day, you know, businesses or organisations or systems evolve. But the problem with evolution, evolution was a great system for um, for plants and animals because we have had 13.8-odd billion years. But the problem with evolution is evolution works through mistakes, not through successes. And so, you know, something like a system, it needs step change, it needs innovation. You know, evolution will just continue to grind away um, slowly and, and not provide the change we really need, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly have my own personal views around how certain things could be done differently. I, yeah. um, it's not my area of expertise. I have an academic background, so I have to be careful yeah. with what I say, but, um, you know, there's so many parallels with the problems that I see in medicine with my own background in academia, with some of my friends um, who work in law and in architecture. In many ways, the problems aren't particular to medicine. I think it is something to do with the manner in which professions have evolved over time. Sure, um, sure. Coming back to medicine specifically, I reckon there's huge scope for us to be more creative in terms of how doctors are trained, if you like. We know it takes a hell of a long time to create a doctor um, I'm certainly not suggesting that that needs to change, but, um, you know, is it time to rethink things like the apprenticeship model, for example? Is it time that we start thinking outside of the square in terms of how many part-time training or fellowship positions are on offer? Um, you know, one of the women who I interviewed as part of my qualitative study talked about her very serendipitous um, opportunities that she was offered to do part-time training in surgery. Um, and, you know, she found that that was hugely beneficial. She wouldn't change it, uh, and she's actually recommending that as a pathway for more and more young aspiring surgeons coming through. Yeah, right. And you, you see the rise of other, um, I guess, organisations who are really pushing back against uh, perhaps changes to hours around training and working and that type of thing. So I think mm. we don't necessarily have to rely on the way that it's always been done. Um, um, my father-in-law is a retired ophthalmologist, and I, I asked him about how he found his training uh, periods and working as a house surgeon and so on. He said, oh, it was bloody awful. He said, I didn't learn a damn thing. Mm. Uh, you know, he said he was so knackered the whole time. He said he just sort of trotted it out and worked a bit like a zombie. Mm. So, you know, that was a long time ago now. He's in his 80s. Uh, yeah. And yet we still seem to be replicating the way in which it's always been done. Yeah. Maybe yeah. it's time to, to change. 
Yeah, not, so, my, yeah. not my area of expertise, but I certainly no, but, no, but, but fair enough. And I'm sure a lot of a lot of doctors listening, and a lot of doc- we've been through that. You know, the junior doctor years. You know, you're you're chasing blood. You're doing a lot of things that isn't aren't really expanding your medical knowledge. So you're probably right. But let's let's talk about this gender and bias in medicine. You know, three quarters of women in their thirties, you know, being you know burnt out. You know, half of doctors being burnt out. The numbers are huge both ways. Yep. But but particularly obviously in in, in in women, obviously that prompted you to do this this qualitative research. So can you describe your research and let's talk about what you found? Sure. So when we first took the burnout statistics around the district health boards, the question that we were always asked is, well, why? And we didn't really know why. We, we knew some of the some of the parts of the puzzle, the short staffing, all that kind of stuff. But we didn't really know what was going on in terms of the lived experiences of doctors in this particular age cohort. So my background is in qualitative research, so it was a natural, I guess, pathway for me to go out and talk to these women. And in the end, I spoke with 14 women from around the country working in a range of different specialties, including surgical specialties. They self-nominated to participate in the research. Um, Some of them were motivated by the realization that they were perhaps on the cusp of burnout. Others Mm -hmm. were just, awesome, generous women who wanted to help out with a really good research project. Um, So thank you to all of those women who helped out. Um, Mm. I found the interviews fascinating. They were incredibly long. They were very in-depth. Some of them lasted for up to three hours. Um, And they weren't your kind of standard list of questions. Let's run through them. They were more like conversations, semi-structured interviews. And we touched on a huge range of subjects from why did they choose their specialty? How do they feel about their work-life balance? Would they recommend medicine to a younger version of themselves? So a real wide range of topics uh, we touched upon. But what I found as I was going around talking to these women um, were common themes. And so the final analysis that I undertook was to really explore what are the commonalities of experience that these women have expressed how do they relate both to broader indicators around well-being and the sustainability of medicine as a profession? And what can we learn from their experiences in terms of um, you know, coming up with suggestions for change? Mm-hmm. And I, I think um, I would love to complement this study with interviewing uh, younger male doctors as well, because mm-hmm. I certainly, my gut feeling is that many of the things that they described are particular to the gender uh, and the gender norms around being a woman in medicine today and how medicine has evolved as a very gendered profession. Um, But, you know, in 2025, so only in five years' time, the Medical Council of New Zealand estimates that we will have more women in medicine than men, at least coming out of medical schools. So, um, you know, these questions around what it's like to work as a woman in medicine today are very pertinent and I think, uh, they're worthy of exploration, not only in the least because they might shed a light on um, burnout and the statistics behind burnout and presenteeism and so on, but these broader questions around sustainability of medicine as a profession and how we can try and make our district health boards around the country the employers of choice for many doctors um, who have chosen this arduous career and I don't think have gone into it lightly. Mm. Um, so we really need to think about how we can improve things for doctors, especially by the time they reach a specialist um, rank in the medical system, because it takes a long time to get there. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big commitment. So what did you, what did you find? 
Well, I, I ended up distilling it down into kind of three overlapping themes. Um, one of the things that women often talked about was this notion of work-life balance. And everybody's talking about work-life balance, whether you're a, a bloke or a sheila, you know, um, we all juggle, um, uh, whether it be our domestic commitments alongside our work commitments or um, our passions outside of medicine. So how do we, what are some of the peculiarities around that juggle that these women, women have faced? And in this vein, I was really interested to explore, I guess, some of the history around medicine. And this led me into the second thing, which was some of the assumptions around time and norms around time. Uh, and I've already talked about how it takes a very long time to become a doctor. But there's also key assumptions around doing your time and proving your competence through having done your time, um, which is firmly embedded in the in the way in which doctors are trained and the way in which doctors are expected to work. Mm. It's not uncommon, I think you would agree, that you're expected to regularly and routinely work above and beyond your allocated hours of work. You know, patients don't adhere to a nine to five work schedule, we know that. But what aspects of the culture of medicine uh, contribute to these um, manners of working that can be really detrimental to looking after yourself, to finding time to care for yourself, and indeed, as many of these women were finding, to enable them to perform that juggle between the work and their and their other domestic commitments. Um, so my background's in geography, uh, and so I'm particularly interested in boundaries, how we create boundaries between the different spheres of our existence. and. You know, we've already talked about how in medicine it's expected in many ways not just to be a job, it's a vocation, it's something that becomes your life, it's, it's a core aspect to your identity. Um, so there's a very different type of boundary around medicine in terms of it bleeding into many different facets of your life. You know, you mm -hmm. identify quite clearly as a doctor. It's expected that work, in turn, you bring your work home with you quite often. It's expected that you'll catch up with your administrative duties at home in your own personal time. Many of the women spoke about frustrations with not having enough time to do things like keep up with current literature, to, to do their um, preparation for the next day's surgeries, that type of stuff. Um, if they have significant other domestic commitments, if they are really tied up in this juggle of work and um, life, then finding time can be even more problematic. So those were two kind of inter intertwined themes that I really focused yep. on. Yep. Um, and underpinning a lot of that were the significance of broader gender norms, um, the fact that the women were routinely mistaken as or misidentified by patients as the nurse or yep. when they're yep. conducting ward rounds as the specialist, patients would direct questions to the lone male medical student in their group. Uh, what is the broader significance of those minor mm. acts of misidentification? How mm. over time can they um, I guess coalesce to make women have to kind of work harder to assert themselves as the legitimate medical professional. What does it mean if you're routinely getting misidentified or treated differently by your staff? Um, you know, another anecdote that I um, had shared with me was one woman who was a surgeon who uh, over a significant period of time was always provided with the wrong equipment by her nursing staff. And um, she would ask them very politely to get the correct um, equipment. But it wasn't until she lost her temper one day, slammed her fist down and swore at the nursing staff and in many ways acted like a surgeon that her request was adhered to. 
And so mm. there's some very interesting things around the interplay of gender schemas, gender norms, what people expect a doctor to look like, and how that in turn can also feed into the need to work harder to assert yourself as, as legitimate in that space. Mm. Um, I've also been interested, you know, a lot of the women, but not all of them, had children. And, you know, perhaps some of the listeners to this podcast and those who've read my research might think, well, of course, women in their 30s are going to have a high rate of burnout. It kind of makes sense. It's that perfect storm age where you're transitioning from a registrar to a consultant. You might also be thinking about starting a family. Um, but the thing I always came back to was, well, their male counterparts would also be experiencing the same issues. So what is it about the things that those women are experiencing that make it such a qualitatively different experience? Um, so the research in many ways was, was not just a reflection around what women were doing or perhaps what women could do differently, but in many ways it was looking at, well, what are their male counterparts not doing or what can work as a, as a broader thing be doing differently? So what would you? What were the main differences between the, the, the male counterpart and the female um, doctors in that age group, and and how did that you know help to protect the males? I guess to some extent. I think um, the women who I spoke with, especially those who had domestic commitments and mainly yep. children, I think they really they detailed that sense of responsibility for it in ways that I don't think they felt that either their male partners or their male colleagues really felt. Yeah. Um, and I think this isn't, this isn't insignificant. You know, I was doing some research around the rise of professions and they are clearly gendered. The rise of a profession, including medicine, has a clearly gendered history and that it was enabled to happen because there was always somebody at home taking care of the unpaid labor and performing mm. that unpaid labor. So professional work has arisen if you like based on the fact that you can only dedicate yourself in that way both temporally and i guess um intellectually if you know that somebody else is also taking care yeah. of those other responsibilities yeah. you have women who are still seen by and large you know we still operate in accord with these really um subtle and yet powerful gender schemas which still see women as having a sense of responsibility for the domestic sphere Obviously, if we have children, then there are certain biological realities which mean that we are more heavily invested or more significantly affected by mm. having kids. But, you know, it's um, it's a really interesting field. And I think part mm. of the purpose or the significance of the work that I was trying to put out there was just to make people think about these things. Yeah. Um, I'm particularly yeah. concerned about the way in which we describe the growing numbers of women in medicine as the feminization of medicine. It's a very simple um, linguistic slip, but it's actually a pejorative description, if you think sure. about it. Because to suggest that medicine's never been gendered and it's only now becoming gendered that we have growing numbers of women in it um, yeah. is not necessarily an accurate representation, in my view. Mm. No, it's, I mean, it, yeah, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? And I, I, you know, I sort of thought about this burnout as well. Might you say my grandfather was a was a doctor, you know, the, the, the family, the GP, back when GPs did a bit of surgery and a bit of an anesthetics and he delivered babies and, you know, he was on 24 hours a day, potentially. But that's exactly what he had. He, he had a wife, he had five kids, but he had a wife who was full-time mum. 
Um, and he would come home from work and the kids knew that he would go to his study and he'd do some reading and have a cigar. And, you know, it was a very different world to, to what we have now. Um, probably for, for male and female doctors, you know, I don't know many male doctors who get to go home and have a cigar and sit in their study is either. But for the, for, for women, do you think there's, do you think there's a stronger identity potentially, um, as, is for, for a woman who, for a mother compared to a father. Do you think the males, if they primarily said, who are you? Would they say, I'm a doctor, I'm a surgeon? Is, is a woman less likely to, to put, would she say, look, I'm a doctor and a mother? I mean, is there a sort of an identity piece there that, may, that means you go, I'm gonna be dropping the ball on something and it's harder if you feel like you're dropping the ball on everything. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a really interesting question and some of the women who I spoke to who were mothers as well, certainly um, they would flex their primary identity depending on who they were talking to. So I sure. think if they were out at their playgroup, they wouldn't really want to be seen as a, as a doctor, probably because they'd get all the other mothers asking them, well, what's this rash on yes. little exactly. one's bottom, you know, all that exactly. kind of stuff. Um, and but we I all think know as doctors that rashes are just impossible. Who, no one knows. <laughs> But I think on the flip side, there was a real strong sense that these women had to police their identities as mothers when they returned mm. to paid work. And yeah. one woman had this great line where she said, when I go to work at the, you know, at the start of the day, I have to leave all the other stuff at the door. Mm. The expectation is clear. As a doctor, you don't bring your life to work. You put on mm. your professional demeanor. You come in as a doctor. No one cares if you've got children at home who are, you know, unwell or struggling or whatever, you have to leave that behind. And another woman who I spoke with talked about how she actively policed herself not to talk about the fact that she had a newborn baby at home because she didn't want to be misread as somehow unprofessional or less committed mm. as a consequence of that. She really had that sense that it could be used against her. Mm. So there is a lot of active um, boundary making practices in play and I'm particularly interested, as I said before, about how work is expected to bleed into your personal life and yet your personal life is not expected to bleed into your professional world. You really have to, it's, it's a one-way boundary. It's but um, I think, you know, your point about do men feel the same? Well, I think the new generation coming through probably do. Uh, I had a couple of younger men um, when I was giving earlier presentations mm. around this talk to me about their attempts to facilitate what they thought was required to have more involvement in their children's life and to have a better work-life balance. And one of the ways that they'd sought to do this was to re request a reduction in their FTE, you know, the hours worked. Yeah. And there was significant pushback to that request. And I think this is, again, where some of the structural issues are coming into play. You know, we know that mm. they're short-staffed. It's hard to take leave. It's hard to reduce your hours because there's no one else there to, to pick yeah. up the, the workload. So you can see how it is very much an interplay with the cultural and the structural factors. And it's somewhat a self-perpetuating problem, isn't it? I think so. But I, I, I actually feel quite hopeful about the new generation coming through. Mm. Um, you know, we give millennials a lot of shit, really, but uh, I think in some ways the fact that they are willing to say, actually, I want to have a life, I do want to do medicine, but I also want to have interests and activities outside of my profession that mm. will sustain me in the long run is a really helpful thing. And also, you know, I think we have to start questioning the full-time work 
model as well. How sustainable yep. is it? Yeah. You know, I know that there's a lot of debates around continuity of care, um, but surely, you know, coming back to your challenge before, do we need to be more creative? Do we need to think outside of the box? Well, I think we surely can fix issues around continuity of care mm. in ways that mm. will, at the end, benefit the patient and the quality of care that they receive. Mm. Um, you don't have to just be the have that sense that everything is resting on your shoulders, I think. It's interesting you say, Hope, because I, I, I feel the same way in terms of you speak to younger generations of doctors, you, know, you speak to medical students, speak to the junior doctors, and, and they do see things differently. My prediction um, is, though, that burnout's going to get worse before it gets better because the problem we have is we have... So say, for example, we go back to a, a young parent, male or female, and, and you know, the, the, we had this big gap between you know, women 75% burnout compared to men at 50, which is still incredibly high. The, 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 the problem we have is that the new generation is potentially of men are going to feel the same way as the women going, I really am dropping the ball on being a dad. And so the burnout is going to get worse before it gets better because we have a, another generation coming through with a different set of expectations, but a, a system that doesn't meet those expectations. But then why, why I feel that it will then get better is that that generation will be the one that drives change. So the next generation may be coming to a better system. And you know, I, when I talk about burnout, I, I go and speak, I used to um, when we were allowed to, but go and speak at conferences to doctors and. And, and, and there's this real sense, you know, you know, with these, you know, younger, and I say, you know, younger sort of 30s, 40s doctors going, you know, we need to change this. And there's also the sense of, 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 um, of duty, I believe, in this generation that goes, we can leave this better than we found it. We, you yeah. know, and, and so I think while it's a challenging time and while, you know, it's probably going to get darker before it gets lighter, I do think we're going to be moving. I think we're moving in the right direction. And I, you know, the research that I did detailed a lot of really miserable experiences that these women had gone through. But equally, there were some real glimmers of hope in their stories. And I'm thinking in particular about those who had been incredibly well supported by both their colleagues and in particular um, amazing clinical directors that they'd worked with over time, mm. who really went that extra mile in terms of um, supporting them through various um, pinch points, I guess, in their career. Uh, and the feeling that these women had was that that had made all the difference to whether yep. they stayed or left. And so I don't think you can underestimate the importance of perhaps um, the kind word, you know, I see behind you, be kind always. It is so important to foster um, collegial ways of speaking, treating each other as people who do yep. have lives and commitments and, and, and many instances might, might have a hell of a lot of stuff going on outside of work as well. We yep. have to see it as people, not just as automatums um, working in a big system. Um, and I, you know, I spoke to a group of um, psychiatrists the other evening about uh, their experiences and there were some young um, PGY1s in the audience as well and they were really eager to talk to me about uh, how they were perceiving things going through. Mm -hmm. um, one of them in particular talked about an argument that she'd had recently with another a younger male student colleague who said, oh, this gender pay gap stuff is a load of bollocks. It's just because women don't work hard or they choose specialties that are um, more poorly remunerated. Um, and I was 
quite surprised at that and she was very frustrated and she said, well, how would you, you know, how would you push back against that? Um, and I think, again, this is where paying attention to the, the role of gender bias and how subtle it is, is a really mm. important step. You actually have to start recognising that bias in many different ways, be it racial um, or gender based, is yeah. there and it will shape how we view things. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and understanding we all have it. That's that's exactly. that's the thing. You know, I sort of, you know, we're looking. There's a lot. You know, with Black Lives Matter, for example, at the moment. You know, I wouldn't say I'm racist, but I know I have racial biases. Yep. Um, we all do. As you say, everybody has it. Take the Harvard implicit bias test. It's incredibly confronting. Mm. But once you recognise that you have bias, then there are right. additional steps to do that's things right. about it. And it's You're very like, well. Shining the light is step one. That's right. Yes. And then you can consciously act rather than subconsciously, I guess. Exactly. And, you know, I can't emphasise enough the importance of actually making the implicit um, conscious in so many ways. There was a yes. fascinating paper that I read recently which found that people who do not believe that there are problems with um, gender bias, and particularly around things like gender pay gaps and so forth, are more likely to have significant levels of gender bias themselves and secondly, are more likely to act upon that gender bias in ways that perpetuates the, the problem. So there's a right. very, very good study recently published um, at the beginning of this year, which looked at uh, gender bias in, in veterinary science, um, which again, similar to medicine as a formerly male dominated profession that's becoming increasingly um, feminized, to use that pejorative mm. term. But despite, you know, the growing or the gender balancing of the profession, problems with gender pay gaps, lack of women in leadership positions um, persist. And it's precisely due to this problem that people mm. are not willing to recognise the fact that they have an issue with gender bias and that that bias can influence their subsequent actions around um, employment practices and mm. advancement opportunities. Yeah, that's really interesting. I remember before I became a parent, I read, you know, when we were you know, young kids, and I remember reading something going, uh, the good parents don't think they're good parents. The people who think they're great parents generally aren't. Yeah. And so, you know, if, if, you, if, if you just don't observe that there's issues, you, you're just going to blindly carry on. But if you actually think, oh, jeepers, maybe I'm not so good in this space, actually that's the first step to becoming good in that space. Yeah, um, there was just one other thing I wanted to talk about just briefly. I don't know how Wait. much time we've got, but um, no, it's, a, it's the prospect of part-time work. And yep. so in the UK and the NHS and increasingly in Australia, I'm sure you might be aware of that ONG specialist who um, said that, you know, the growing number of women entering into medicine is putting the profession at risk. It's, a, it's been described in the UK as a ticking time bomb. Yeah. And... Um, you know, I think it's really important that we actually stop and think about this. What are the assumptions going on here? And this comes back to that the emphasis that I had in my research on time and norms around time. Um, a lot of the women who I interviewed were working less than full time, not because they had private work, um, but because they were picking up unpaid work or simply because they felt that they needed to work fewer hours just to kind of cope sure. with, the, with yep. the rigors of the work. Um, I think actually we need to start questioning how we can foster more part-time opportunities or less than full-time opportunities and normalize that as a really legitimate way of working in medicine um, and arguably in many other professions too because I think 
until we do so, it's not going to be seen as a legitimate way of working. Um, and yeah. yet the benefits from working less than full time are huge. Mm. You know, I'm thinking of there's there's been quite a lot of research out there which suggests that the clinical outcomes of patients who are seen by doctors who are working less than full time um, are often better because they're wow. given more attention or the doctor has more time or energy to commit to their patient. Um, sure. And that, that came out strongly in some of the interviews that I conducted as well. Mm. Um, but I think perhaps the most concerning factor is um, we know that burnout is precipitated by working very, very long hours. Yep. Uh, in yep. the study that I conducted originally, there was a strong correlation between not having a break um, of, I think it was less than 10 hours between work and having worked more than 24 hours in a single period and working really long hours with your likelihood to be experiencing burnout. Mm. Um, the point here is uh, many of the women who are working less than full time actually denigrated themselves for that way of working. They, they described themselves as feeling like a bit of a slacker or feeling like they weren't being treated as a, as a real doctor because of their decisions to work less than full time. Yeah. So you can kind of see that tension in a way. Um, we know that working less, fewer hours is protective but if that's not also accompanied by a cultural shift which encourages and supports yeah. different ways of working, then yeah. it's not actually going to be a protective strategy. So that's yeah. certainly something that I think could be um, addressed. Um, well, I mean, anyone listening, I guess anyone listening or watching, I guess if, 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 if your immediate gut reaction is kind of bullshit, let's just work harder, maybe that's the sign to go, actually, maybe I'm part of the problem. Maybe I could start to, particularly if you're in, in leadership, you know, clinical directors have such a, um, a, a, a an influence over their department. I mean, culture is very much set from the top. So, um, you know, being, in, and I hear similar sort of stories, you know, um, people often, you know, women job sharing, surgeons, and they, they're just good doctors because they're, they're engaged. They don't feel like they're not doing their, their parent. They're doing a good job of being a parent, good job being a doctor but it takes a clinical director to go, that's a great idea, let's do that. Um, and so believe that to be offered as an option for the young men coming through too. Sure, no, exactly. It's not just, no, no. Not just the women. Yes, yeah. and I think if that was normalised as a, oh, your, your wife's about to give a baby, well, let's think about how we can tweak your FTE for the next wee while or give you some flexible working options, then that would make a huge difference, I suspect. Mm. Mm. But um, to help with that, we, I mean, they, to your original point, we need funding because we need more doctors, don't we? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And all, so on that note, we, we a are A lot of these ideas, what was that? Oh, sorry, Sam, I was just going to say, we, we are about to put out a, um, a pre-election special in our specialist magazine that the ASMS produces where we go through the various health policies of the political parties um, looking at some of these key issues. So right. if you're undecided as to how you're going to vote, then certainly have a look at that if you need right. well, if, And I'll make sure if you can share me a share a link with me, we'll make sure we um, share that through our channels as well because, right. um, you know, actually having someone else do. Who has the time to go through it? You guys do, so we'll just read what you We've say. We've done the hard work, so yeah, yeah. That's, that's what we're here for. That's exactly what we need. Hey, um, you know, I, I found this incredibly interesting, and and I think you know, to some point, you know, to that point of there's there's some confronting things as well, and you start to sometimes you notice your own reaction, and you're like, oh, that's just part of the same same old problem of that culture. So I found it really uh, really interesting. Is there is there anything else? Where do we where do we go from here? I mean, 
how do you think we best navigate this? I mean, there's, converse, there's research, there's conversations like this which just shine the light. You know, where do we need to go? How do we make this better? Well, again, I come back to my first point. It's a multifaceted problem, so it's going to require many different solutions. I think, you know, the work that we continue to do as the Union for Senior Doctors and Dentists um, in terms of pushing these arguments at management of our district health boards and many other employers around the country is really important. You know, we have to have more flex in the system. There needs to be more bums on yep. seats to enable different ways of working. Yep. It's a really important point. Yeah. Um, but alongside that, there also has to be those debates within the colleges as well. How can they tweak their training pathways to make things easier? Or do they allow the same opportunities? Um, is it fair? You know, how can they, how can things be improved at that level as well? So mm. everybody has to feel that they've got skin in the game in these debates because it's there's no silver bullet, if you like. Um, yeah. It goes right back to the education, the, yeah. the role that colleges have in terms of the professional training, some of the norms, the cultural norms that are perpetuated through their part of the process as well. Um, and then it comes to the employer. What can they be doing in terms of shifting the culture, putting less pressure on departments to work short-staffed, to deal with clinical creep? Um, but I certainly think in terms of the work that individual doctors can do, um, sure, you can do your mindfulness course, but I actually think doing some of the work around um, having those discussions within a department about, you know, what can we do to perhaps support the younger generation coming through? How can we really wrap support around people who might be going through key transition moments? Mm. Those are really important things to consider too. Mm. Um, you know, I'm just reflecting on my own experience in academia. You know, when I was a junior academic coming out of my PhD and getting my first academic post, the thing that made the biggest difference to me were having mentors, having um, more ex more experienced seniors who'd been through the system to back me or to, to feel that I could discuss issues and questions with them and, and come up with different ways to navigate problems as I encountered them. You know, there are some amazing mentoring programs out there. I'm thinking about Juliet Rumble Smith's Wahine Connect. Um, so if you are able to act as a mentor, don't underestimate the value of it, but make sure that you're encouraging them to work in a, in a good and sustainable way, not just perpetuate the the way in which it's always been done is the only option. Well, interesting, so, I mean, interesting answer there, because as you say, it's multifaceted. Um, there's no one answer. And on one, on one hand, you could say, well, that's problematic. But on the other hand, it means we can all play our part. You know, whether you're the medical student, the junior doctor, the registrar, the specialist, the clinical director, you're in policy, you're hiring, whatever it is, execs in, in the hospitals, we can all do our bit. And actually, if we all have that, I guess, commitment to that end outcome, which is we need to do better, um, yeah. um, then we just start where we are, I guess. We start where we are with what we can do and what we can influence. And the more of us who are doing that, the more of us who are having these conversations, the more of us who are taking little actions every day, that's how you shift a culture. It is. And, you know, if you want a reason why it matters, um, the evidence again suggests that patient care benefits when staff are working in environments where they feel that they are supported, um, that they feel that they are, uh, it's a nice place to work. You can't underestimate yep. the, the kind of broader significance of that. So you should be and kind and, and don't underestimate the um, importance of inquiring, well, how are you? You know, how's yeah. everything going outside of work? Yeah. It's, um, 
But yep. equally, you need the time to have that um, type of discussion too. Where's doctors sign up for that? First, do no harm, and it starts starts with us. So if we apply that to ourselves and our colleagues and our departments, our hospitals, we'll, we'll move it in a better direction. Yeah, good note to end on. Awesome. Great note to end on, exactly. Well, look, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. I've really enjoyed uh, sort of understanding some of the work you've done, some of the, the insights you gained, and some of the uh, conclusions you came to. So look, we'll look forward to sharing uh, your your uh, analysis of the, the various policies. But yep. look, really appreciate your time, um, and I'm sure anyone listening or watching has, has enjoyed it too. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Sam. You have a great day. And anyone listening, watching, you have a great day too. All right. See you later. See ya.